Well, I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We were nearing the very end of our time in 1 Peter, but obviously a few events have led to us putting that on pause. Uh, We will continue to do so for a couple more weeks. Uh, Before we get started, I just want to give you all a brief update in case you're not already familiar with what's going on. We can kind of all hear it at the same time. Um, Gabby on uh, October 24th, when she was 30 weeks pregnant, her water broke Sunday morning. We ran to the hospital, and uh, through a series of events, uh, that evening they finally came to the determination that indeed uh, she did have a preterm rupture. And so we've been in the hospital ever since. Um, So far, some of the underlying causes to why that could happen Um, have been ruled out, Um, so that's a good thing. Um, However, there is still some uncertainty as to why it happened and as to why there is still an overabundance of fluid there. So we would invite you to continue to to pray with us. Um, God has certainly been kind in allowing him, our little boy, to stay in the womb now for quite a bit since October 24th. Uh, we were, that was the initial concern, is that he was coming that day. And any of you who are parents know that losing 10 weeks of preparation time is not great. Uh, but God has certainly been kind, and he has remained in the womb, growing. He is kicking. He is an active little boy. Uh, Gabby's doing great. They both seem to be healthy. So they have moved our delivery date. Uh, we were expecting October, December 29th. Uh, but she will be induced, Lord willing, on November 17th. Uh, so we're very close. So can continue to pray with us. We would invite you to. And we want to thank you uh, for both, from both Gabby and I of uh, the kindness that you've displayed to us, in uh, whether it be a call or a text or a meal. Uh, those things you know, often seem like a small thing, but they are extraordinarily helpful. And it really does help us to... Um, be reminded daily of the kindness of the Lord towards us and His very near presence with us. So thank you, uh, whether you've just helped extra here at the church or um, calls or text messages, whatever it is, thank you very much. And may the Lord bless you in return. So as we've been sitting in this hospital and our our boy is near um, to his entrance into the world, We've obviously had a lot of time to sit and think as we've been in the hospital. and Many of you can remember your parents, your upbringing, and there's always something that sticks out to you. Maybe something that your father passed down to you or your mother passed down to you. And it could be small, it could be big, but there's always something that sticks out to you in your memory whenever you think of your parents. And so we've been thinking, you know, what is it, what is it that he's going to think about when he thinks of us, what is it that we ought to pass down to him? As a Christian and having a biblical worldview, the answer is very simple. And it's the same thing that every parent is to pass on to their child. And it's the same very thing that I desire to impart to you as the pastor of this church. And it is understanding the message of Christ crucified understanding the word of the cross and understanding 
that we live in a day and an age where this message is scorned. You see, it's easy for us to look at the world and say, my baby is being born into a very hostile world, and indeed he is. But those of you who have parents and us now, we need to understand that it's not, oh, poor child of mine. Your child is born at this day and at this time for a purpose. They are being born and brought into this world for such a time as this. And your responsibility, my duty as a parent, is to raise this child in the fear and the knowledge of the Lord. You know why? Because if we do not impart to them what this book says, there is the world, the flesh, and the devil that are more than ready and more than happy to fill them with every manner of wickedness. We don't want that to happen now, do we? Because we love our children, but further, that is what the Lord has tasked us with. So we need to be reminded that the word of the cross, the message of Scripture, it is indeed what saves us, but it is also hated by the world around us. As you raise your child, maybe you don't have a child. Maybe you just are learning and growing in the faith on your own. You need to be reminded that you are learning something that is completely counter-cultural. You are swimming against the current, my friends. All of the Christian life is uphill until we reach glory. So we need to be reminded of these things. But in that, though the world hates the word of the cross, to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. And that's what our message is going to be on today. We're going to look at the foolish wisdom of God from 1 Corinthians chapter 1. If you would, please stand with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. This is the word of the living God. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach, to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we turn our attention to your word, Lord, I, we all here desire not to hear from a man, but to hear from the Most High God. I pray, Lord, that you would use me this morning to speak clearly as I ought, to preach faithfully as I ought, that the meditations of my mind and my heart and the words of my mouth would be pleasing in your sight this morning. I pray, Lord, that you would work your word powerfully 
by the Spirit, through the proclamation of it, in the hearts of everyone who is listening, and that we would all leave here not saying, what a great sermon, but saying, what a great God we serve. We pray this in the name of Jesus and for his glory. Amen. You can be seated. I want to begin this morning by dealing briefly with the context of our passage in this first letter to the Corinthians. After the opening greeting at the beginning of chapter 1, Paul gives thanksgiving in verses 1 through 9. He then turns his attention in verses 10 through 17 to the reason and purpose for his writing this letter, and it's to deal with a lot of issues that were going on in the Corinthian church. The Corinthians had major problems, and that's partly why these books are so lengthy, because Paul is dealing with all of the issues that they had. But the first issue that he deals with there in verses 10 through 17 is that of division. Some of the Corinthians were dividing themselves up into factions based off of who they were claiming to be followers of. I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Paul. Some were saying that they just follow Christ. Now, why would they do this? Well, certainly for a number of reasons. Some of them will be unknown to us. But we'll deal with one here in order so that we can kind of understand the background of our text. So, Corinth. Where is Corinth? It is sat on an isthmus in Greece. It was a part of ancient Greece. So, because it sat on this narrow strip of land, it was in the middle of a major trade route. Now, why does that matter? Because in ancient times... These major trade cities were known for their immorality. They were known for idolatry. They were known for these things. But even still, the town of Corinth was especially known for their even excessively gross immorality. And this is detailed for us later in this chapter. And when I say that the church at Corinth had issues, they even had the issues of incest taking place in the church And that gives you a sense of what kind of immorality existed there at this time. In chapter 6, verses 9 through 10, Paul will say of the Corinthians, of the people he's writing to, that they were at one time before Christ sexually immoral. They were idolaters. They were adulterers. Some of them were homosexual. They were thieves, they were greedy, they were drunkards, they were revilers and swindlers. Yet, in the midst of all of that mess, God didn't say, well, y'all are just too disgusting for me to save. You are not deserving of the gospel. No, instead, the Lord sovereignly ordained for the Apostle Paul to go in Acts chapter 18 and preach the gospel to this terribly immoral city, and some were saved. And that's what Paul says in chapter 6 is so worrisome of you. This is not your story anymore. This is who you were. But now, after they had believed in the message of the gospel, God washed, sanctified, and justified even the most grossly immoral among them in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. My friends, such is the power of the gospel. The Greeks weren't only known for their pagan worship and immorality. The Greeks are also famous throughout history for philosophy, weren't they? 
You remember back in school, I know the large majority of you just graduated high school last year, so you readily can call this to mind, can't you? There we go. Lying is a sin. Okay. (laughs) But we remember, thinking back at world history, that many philosophers came from Greece. Many of them were Greeks. Think of Socrates and Plato, Aristotle. Any of you remember the Pythagorean theorem? That was made by Pythagoras, and he was a Greek. So all of them, many of them were Greeks. So the Greek people had a great love, not just for their sin and their sexual immorality and these things, but they had a great love for knowledge and wisdom. And so what they would do is divide themselves into factions, saying, well, I follow Socrates, or I follow Aristotle, I follow Thales of, Thales of Miletus. And why are they doing that? Is to associate themselves with the wisdom of this great man of renown. So you see then, it makes sense that they would continue to carry that mindset into the Christian world. Because as you all understand, though we are saved, we are not yet fully sanctified. There is a long road of sanctification and there are many things that God has to work out of our mind. And that's what Paul begins to deal with immediately. Because they're dividing themselves and saying, I follow Apollos. Well, why would you want to follow Apollos? He was a great preacher. In Acts chapter 18, Apollos arrives after Paul leaves, and everyone is astounded. Apollos is this remarkable preacher. He, had a, a, he was eloquent. He had a, a strong grip of the Word. This was the kind of guy that you would want to listen to to preach the Word. Well, what about Cephas? Oh, Peter, I mean, he was just one of the the leaders of the disciples. He just walked with the Lord, that's all. Peter uh, just happened to preach the first sermon after the Spirit fell at Pentecost and some 3,000 people were saved. A guy's got a great resume, so that would certainly be someone you want to associate yourself with. And then Paul, of course. Well, Paul, aside from his doctrinal clarity and his understanding of the Word, He also planted this church in Corinth. And then, of course, Christ. Surely there was some among them who were purists and saying, I don't follow any of those guys. I just follow Jesus. But what's the problem with this? They're dividing themselves into factions. And in the church, this is the last place in the world that we should find division. We should not be divided by men. However, as we see in our passage, what we should be divided from is the thinking of the world. The way that the world thinks. You see, when we are saved, my friends, we are then to have among us the mind of Christ. To think with what we call a biblical worldview. That means from raising your children, to how you spend your money, to how you organize your time, to the boundaries that you need to draw around your life with your work, all of these things need to be filtered through the Scriptures, not mixed in with worldly philosophy. That's what we see in verse 17. Look at it with me. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, 
and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Words of eloquent wisdom. This is the word Sophia in the Greek. And it's a very important word in this section from chapter 1, verse 18 through chapter 2, verse 8. This word makes an appearance 14 times. So this is clearly Paul's point here is to talk about wisdom. He's saying that he wasn't sent to preach the gospel by mixing it with the wisdom of the world. Does that sound familiar to you at all about today? We are not to mix the word of the cross, the scriptures, with anything from the world, but just to preach the gospel as it is. Paul is going to be here contrasting the wisdom of God and the wisdom of man to show that man in his wisdom finds God's wisdom to be absolutely foolish. But God in his wisdom proves that man's wisdom is futile. Let's look at our first major heading today, the contrast of man's wisdom and God's wisdom. Verse 18, read it with me. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. You see the contrast that Paul is making. He's not sent to speak with the words of eloquent wisdom, but just the word of the cross. These two are against each other. They are antithetical. They are contrary to one another. These words of eloquent earthly wisdom and the word of the cross. Paul wasn't saying that you're forbidden from using eloquence. No, obviously many preachers throughout church history have been plenty eloquent. However, that is not where our faith and or belongs and that's not where we find the power of God, is it? The power of God is not found in eloquence. The power of God is not found in human wisdom. Where is the power of God found? It is in the word of the cross. The word of the cross. What is the word of the cross? Obviously, most immediately, he's referring to the message of the gospel. But more broadly, it would be the message of Scripture in its entirety. You can't preach the gospel without the revelation of what man's condition is, or God's holiness or God's sovereignty, or understanding what atonement is, or understanding the, some of the inner workings of the law of Moses, or some of the messianic prophecies. You need all of these things to then understand the word of the cross. Now, does that mean that you need to explain all of those things in great detail for someone to hear the gospel and be saved? Well, of course not. But you and I both know that never once in church history has it been the duty of the church to simply preach the message of the gospel Sunday after Sunday after Sunday and never learn and progress beyond that. We know that, don't we? We're told to grow in the grace and knowledge of God. And what do you need to do that? The Bible. This is my Bible. There are many like it. But this one is mine. We need the Scriptures. And so Paul is telling us the message of the Gospel, the message of the Scriptures, 
The world is not neutral to it. The world is not, well, you know, you can have your way of living and I'll have mine. The world thinks it is folly. It is absolutely ridiculous. But to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And so you in here this morning, when you have heard the gospel, you received it not as the wisdom from men, but wisdom from God. And you believed upon it and you have been saved. That is your mindset towards the gospel and more broadly towards the scriptures is that you think this is the word of God. But if you're in here this morning and you have never believed upon the Lord Jesus Christ, your condition is stated at the beginning. You think this message is folly. You think what the Bible has to say is absurd. It's ridiculous. It's foolishness. Do you know what the word is? It's Mariah, where we get our word moron from. What is that to say? The unbelieving world hears the message of the gospel, hears what this Bible has to say, says that's moronic. That's absolutely ridiculous. You believe that stuff? And so then what happens is the message becomes diluted. Or we mix it with something. We take a little bit of human wisdom, a little bit of philosophy, a little bit of self-help kind of principles, and we mix it in with the gospel, and we say, here, do you, do you like this now? Is this message pleasing to you now? Now will you come to our church? Now, now will you believe upon the Lord? Now will you raise your hand when we have an altar call? What is Paul telling us? It's only the word of the cross that is the power of God. It's the word of of the cross, without any dilution, without any mixture, without any kind of trying to save face as though we're embarrassed of our God, as though we're embarrassed to say that our God is holy, as though we're embarrassed to say that our God is righteous and He demands a death penalty for your sin. Paul says, you empty the cross of its power by preaching. Preaching that way. Not just preaching, my friends. When you try to talk to your friends or family members about the gospel and you want to remove the offense, what are you doing? You are draining the cross of its power. So don't be surprised when you hear people say you actually believe that stuff. You actually want to live your life according to that book. You know that book was written by men, right? You know that book is thousands of years old, right? You know that book was passed down throughout the ages and so many variations exist of it. You actually believe that stuff? You know what that is? That's a heart that is saying, your God and His message is moronic. I don't want it. And what does the Scripture say about that person? That is someone who is perishing. In one sense, we're all dying, yes. But in a fuller sense, those who do not believe are on the path to eternal death. Where do we see this in our culture today? Well, certainly all over the place, but just a few examples. CNN anchor last year, Don Lemon, in attempting to make a political point, said this, quote, Here is the thing. Jesus Christ, if that's who you believe in, Jesus Christ, 
admittedly was not perfect when he was here on this earth. End quote. Jesus Christ was not perfect. Of course he's not. It's an absurd story. Perhaps you've heard of this popular podcaster named Joe Rogan. If any of you remember Fear Factor, he was the host of that show, and he's made a lot of waves recently for his, um, his, the things that he talks about on his podcast, but he's said many times over the years that the message of Christianity, namely the gospel, is absolutely absurd. He interviewed, not long ago, Richard Dawkins. That name should sound familiar. And he was asking him if Jesus was a real person. They were speaking of morality in that show and if religion was responsible for morality. And Dawkins had stated that Jesus would provide some good moral principles to apply to your life, but not entirely. Not entirely. He stated that most of the scholars that he has spoken to say that though the evidence is not great, Jesus probably was real. He goes on to say it's actually not that big of a deal if he's real or not, because there's nothing spectacular about a man named Yehoshua who was a traveling preacher. There were many people by that name who were traveling preachers during that time. There's nothing spectacular about that, but he goes on to say what would be surprising is if what the Scriptures say about all of his miracles were actually real. But to that he responds, quote, that, of course, didn't happen, end quote. On and on we could go, surely. But you see, pop culture shows us clearly that this world believes the message of the cross is absolutely absurd. What an absurd idea. Paul contrasts this Messages reception with those who believe. To the perishing, it's folly, but to the believing, it's the very power of God. The Corinthians would know this quite well, wouldn't they? As I read from chapter 6, they at one time were sexually immoral and idolaters and drunkards and so on and so forth. But because of the power of the gospel, they are now justified in the eyes of God. And so are you this morning. When you are confronted with the reality of your own sinfulness and your desperate need to be reconciled to God, your inability to reconcile yourself to God, and most importantly, that Christ has reconciled you through His work on the cross, and you need only believe. Since then, nothing's been the same in your life, has it? Because at that moment, you were made pure in the eyes of God. There was a time when you were dead in your sins and trespasses, following the prince of the power of the air, but God made you alive in Christ Jesus. Why? Because you're better than everyone else? No, because you believed. You believed in the message of the gospel. And now everything is different. So now perhaps you're thinking, if my life, I'm evidence of this being real, how could this message not be received this way by everyone? It's simple, really. This message is deeply offensive to self-righteous sinners. Think about it. People are living their lives in a manner that they think is right. They perceive themselves to be good people, moral, 
Maybe I have a few hang-ups. You know, I've, I make a few mistakes here and there. Maybe I could stop cussing or spending so much money. But you know what? Overall, I'm a good person. And God, after all, He just wants you to be a good guy and He'll accept you into heaven. So why wouldn't God accept me? I'm a pretty good fella. Really. Then in comes the Gospel saying what? None are good. No, not one. Together we have become worthless. Oh, all of your righteous deeds that you think are so great, in the eyes of God, they're filthy rags. Have you ever tried to clean with a filthy rag? It's less than useless. It actually makes things dirtier, doesn't it? In the eyes of a holy God, not only are you not good enough yet to earn heaven, you will not ever be because you cannot ever be good enough. Further, since you aren't and can't be good enough and all of your righteous deeds are filthy rags, you are guaranteed a seat in hell where you will experience eternal conscious torment forever and ever. That's how not good you are. That's the message of the gospel, isn't it? Well, the first half. Some hear that offensive message and they run. Some Christians hear how offensive that is, and they say, well, I don't want to tell people that. And in so doing, we drain the cross of its power. Today we have removed the offense of the gospel in favor of a more seeker-friendly gospel, one that doesn't cut but hugs. We've traded in the sword of truth for a butter knife of nuance. The gospel, my friends, is not God loves you. The gospel is not giving Clothes to people who are poor and needy. The gospel is not working at a soup kitchen. The gospel is not raising your hand when the music is soft and slow and the music are lights down low and they ask you if you want to go to heaven. That's not the gospel. The gospel is bloody. It is gruesome. It is violent. It is offensive. And though all mankind may view the revelation of God as folly and would rather rely on their own wisdom, it is the power of God unto salvation. Now and forever. Let's look at the failure of man's wisdom. Verses 19 through 22. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. Paul is quoting from Isaiah chapter 29. I'll let you go read that on your own time. We won't go into a great bit of detail about what's going on there, but essentially we can boil it down to say that God is telling Israel that He is going to single-handedly save Israel. They have backslidden. Their leaders are operating according to their own wisdom. And this is where God says, I'm going to destroy the wisdom of the wise. I'm going to show that your wisdom on your own is nothing. That's our God. I'm going to show that the guys that you think are so smart and so brilliant, they're nothing without the wisdom of God. God has always had the plan, both in Isaiah and in 1 Corinthians. 
in the gospel and until the end of the age to display his superiority over every human and worldly system. That's what's demonstrated here with the rhetorical questions that Paul poses. He asks, where is the wisdom of the Where is the one who's wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater? What's he asking? It's in the fourth question. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? That's what he's asking. He's asking rhetorically and sarcastically almost. Where's your wise guys? Where are the smart ones that you have? You can't even cure the common cold yet. You guys haven't figured out how to get our country out of debt, right? You guys haven't been able to settle down crime with all of your great, wonderful, high and lofty truths that you passed down from the universities. You haven't been able to figure out what the meaning of life is. But you know who is the answer to all of that? Is our Lord, Jesus Christ. And that's what God does, as He shows The wisdom of the world can do nothing about skyrocketing suicide rates. It can do nothing about drug addiction. It can do nothing of eternal value. The list goes on and on and on. Where is the wise of this world? Where are they? Instead, what we're seeing here is that God is making foolish the wisdom of the world. And what does the wisdom of the world say today? Well, I recently read of a man who is dressed as a woman going by the name of Rachel Levine who was sworn in as the Admiral of the U.S. Public Health Services Commission Corps. This man is referred to as, quote, from, I believe it was the Washington Post, quote, the organization's first ever female four-star admiral, end quote. A man. That's the wisdom of the world. Do you see is that the wisdom of the world is so foolishness that we don't even know what is a man and what's a woman. There's 50,000 genders now because it's the wisdom of the world is complete foolishness. And when we mix it with the gospel, what do we do? We drain the cross of its power. Oh, God loves you exactly how you are. You don't need to change. You don't need to worry about any of that. God's a cuddly teddy bear, and he just wants to bless you. That's a gospel that cannot save. There's another man named Bruce Jenner, masquerading as a woman, recently dubbed Woman of the Year. This is the wisdom of the world. We could go on and on and on, couldn't we? But church, what I want to say to you today is that we are in a different time. I know that there are many of you who are older than me that might look at what's going on and think, ah, the world's always been that way. And in one sense, yes, the world has always been sinful and lost, absolutely. But this is not the America of old. This is not the America that you grew up in, where we believed in excellence and, and caring about morals and taking care of having a good work ethic or any of those things, or where we were not ashamed of God. This is not that America anymore. So, you and I need not put our faith in politicians, in governmental systems, in civic authorities, in this country, or any of those things, but simply in the word of the cross. This is our steady anchor 
in the midst of an ever-changing tide. I want you to turn to Romans chapter 1 with me. We're going to read through this quickly. But I want you to see this. Perhaps you've never laid your eyes upon these things in the Scriptures. And I want you to go to verse 18, chapter 1, verse 18. This is Paul contrasting again the gospel with the world. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has showed it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Do you see the key statement there? Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And why did this happen? Because they did not honor God as God. Why did this happen? Because they loved their sin more than God. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. You turn on the news today, you listen to people who are unbelievers slandering Scripture, slandering the cross. Boy, they speak with high arrogance, don't they? I mean, I, I just I think the way that I think, I think, I think, well, do you want to know how the Christian's worldview begins? Is not with I think, but it's what it says in verse 19, for it is written. That is how our worldview begins. It is written. But the world, in love with their sin, trades in the truth about God for a lie. So then what happens? Look at verse 24. Therefore God gave them up. What? Let's read that again. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And they worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameful acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. That is a staggering piece of Scripture, isn't it? God gave them up. My friends, we live in a culture like this right now. We live in a culture where we slaughter unborn babies in the womb. We slaughter them. They are dismembered in the womb. Did you know that? Abortion is not a nice, kind little thing. They dismember the baby in the womb. 
We live in a culture that calls a man a woman, a woman a man, or something else entirely. We're going against created order and everything that God has ever said or has ever written. Do we truly think that this is the kind of culture that's going to be receptive to the word of the cross? Absolutely not. They are going to hear this and say, get out of here with your bigotry. Haven't you heard that before? Get out of here you, with your bigotry. Get out of here with your, with your old ways of thinking. You need to progress with the times. It's entirely possible to be so open-minded that your brain falls out, isn't it? And that's exactly what it is today. And I believe that this is what's happening in our world, in our country today, is that God is destroying the wisdom of the wise. How? By giving sinful people over to a debased mind. You want your sin? You want to trade in the truth about God for a lie? God says, have it. What does Proverbs chapter 1 tell us? That the beginning of wisdom is the beginning of knowledge. It's the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning. Do you understand? So when, the, when you don't begin with the fear of the Lord, you only have foolishness. That's all that's left for you. Yes, there are plenty of unbelievers who have made wonderful contributions to the society. Absolutely. But nothing done by way of eternal good. In 1966, Time Magazine published a, mag a magazine with the article on the front that read, Is God Dead? Certainly Time Magazine doesn't have the power to change the heart of a culture. But I believe that certainly spoke to where we were at that time. That something like that could be posted and read and received. Is God dead? My friends, if God's dead, you and I are completely lost and hopeless. If God's dead, this world would spin out of control, fall into the sun and disintegrate. If God was dead, there'd be no breath in your lungs. You wouldn't be here right now. God's not dead. The world lost in their sin and trespasses is. They're dead in their sins and trespasses. Let's look at our final passage here today. Is the power of God's wisdom. The power of God's wisdom. Jews are demanding signs. Greeks are seeking wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. It's a stumbling block to Jews. It's folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. The Jews want one thing. The Greeks want another. Paul is encompassing all of the unbelieving world into these two statements. How do we know that? Because of verse 18, he was just referring to those who are perishing. Some people want to see signs. They want to see the miracles. They want to see signs and wonders. They want to see people's one leg getting longer and people's backs feeling better. People want to see glory clouds. They want to see those kinds of things today. That's seeking signs. The Greeks are seeking wisdom they want to know what does the smart, 
guy say in this world? Who's, who's the intellectual? Who's the guy who has degrees from uh, Harvard or Yale? What do they have to tell us? Paul says, we don't pay attention to that. We preach Christ crucified. When you come to this church, by the grace of God, it will always be this way. Whether it be in Sunday school, whether it be in our children's class, wherever it is, we will not mix the message with the wisdom of the world. We will not cater to the wisdom of the world. This message is offensive because it must be. Because in the offense, that is when we are turned to be saved. You want to talk about offense? God Almighty was offended. You want to talk about offense? Let's talk about how offensive your sin is in the eyes of a holy God. How, sin, how offensive? That the only way that you could be forgiven is for Jesus Christ, the Son of God, to dawn flesh, come into this world, live the life that you think you're living, but you never have and you never will. A perfect one. He completely satisfied the righteousness of God. Fulfilling every jot and every tittle in the law of Moses. He went to the cross, and on that cross, the Father looked at him like he was you. He saw all of your wretchedness. It was imputed to his blameless Son. And the Father poured his righteous indignation that was meant for you, that you had stored up because of your sinfulness. He poured it on his own Son. Christ died, proving he was truly man. But then he was resurrected on the third day, proving he was truly God. And right now, he reigns supreme at the right hand of the Father, where you and I will be one day because we have placed our faith in the word of the cross. And if you have never done so, this, this morning is your opportunity. Do it now. We're not gonna, we don't ever ask people to come to the front. We don't ask you to raise your hand. None of those things save you. What saves you is calling upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, believing upon Him in your heart, and repenting of your sin. There's nothing for you to do. You understand? This is the beauty of the word of the cross. You're not good enough. You can't be good enough. Christ was good for you. You need only trust in Him today. And my friend, you will be saved with the rest of us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for saving us. We thank you that we couldn't deserve it. We couldn't earn it. All we had earned and deserved was your wrath. But you sent your son to save us. We thank you for the preaching of the word of the cross. That though it is offensive, saves. Lord, now as we turn our attention to partake of the Lord's Supper, I pray that you would examine our hearts, bring to our attention anything that we need to repent of, that we may partake of the elements in a worthy way. We pray this in your holy name.
Amen. If you would please stand.